This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, I'm taking total credit or blame for that song uh, as the lead-in, Paul Brennan uh, being very nice to me. Uh, Bruce Linton is here. He's the CEO of Canopy. This is the big deal of the day. And I just want to read the lead of the Bloomberg story because it really captures it all. Constellation Brands, which for seven decades has made its money off beer, wine, and whiskey, sees its future in a marijuana leaf. And that is through a $3.8 billion deal announced today for Canopy shares. Bruce, tell us how this came about. Well, and remember, I'm from Canada, so that when you do the conversion, it sounds like $5 billion. And so uh, <laughs> That sounds know, even better. I, I, I tend to go right to the deep end of the pool and use the convert when I can. Um, so it came about uh, in about November of 2016. Rob Sands had made a comment uh, in some public forum that he thought it would make sense for them to Rob be Rob Sands, can- CEO of Constellation. Constellation yep. That they should maybe be in the, uh, the cannabis space, which uh, made me curious as to whether he was genuine or off of his rocker because every other alcohol beverage player was trying to shut us down. They hated the topic. Wow. And, and so uh, using a very powerful business tool called LinkedIn, uh, we reached out to a person who does uh, business development there, and we began a conversation that went for 11 months culminating in October of 2017, where they invested $245 million for 9.9% of the company and a warrant for an equivalent amount. And what occurred over the last, I'll call it 11 months or so of working together, is that they've been on a great journey, recognizing there isn't, when you grow a marijuana plant, a medical one or a not medical one. What you have is a marijuana plant, and there are many types. And when you extract the ingredients out of those plants, you can get to the point where you think about how do I bring them back together and maybe I'm making a sleep aid and I'm taking it through medicinal trial mm. as Canopy is doing, or I'm reconstituting it with a pH balanced water and making you a beverage that has zero calories and makes Friday night pretty upbeat. So what was the catalyst for this additional investment? Um, so both sides of the deal, I just had in uh, June done about a $600 million convertible to venture, which was a pretty big deal, except you know, you do something else. That convert was placed all with U.S. institutional and European institutional. And so we're very well capitalized to keep going. But we also saw that there's not going to be little guys coming to this game. Uh, Europe's opening up. South America's opening up. The U.S. might state by state. And when you know, the names that you're going to see on those corporations are giant names. So I thought, why not put your foot to the floor and accelerate right now and get a two- or three-year lead at scale? And we're the biggest operator in the world. We understand scale, but I want to make sure that we can go from the plant to the extract to the finished medical goods and the best beverages and party products that you'd imagine. And then you take market share with brands, and Constellation's great at that. So that's kind of what got us going. I want to talk about the future of growth here, and we were joking about Canadian versus U.S. dollars. Fortunately, we have your balance sheet here in Canadian dollars, so your numbers do look a little bit better. I want to know how you're getting from you know, $70 million, $80 million revenue going out over the next two years. That's jumping up to $350 and then $900 million Canadian dollars. Where do you see that growth coming from? Is that 
a bet on Canada, a bet on the fact that you're hoping that it'll be legal in the U.S. across all 50 states, or are you looking to go international as well? Yeah, so we, we don't give guidance. These are analyst numbers, and I would say that the analyst community is quite thin and, and narrow right now. Mm. So I think that they don't want to be wrong, and you can't be wrong if you're super low. And so what's happening in Canada is we have currently 350,000 people who are medical patients, meaning that a federal government-permitted product is available to them, and we have about 30% of that market share. October 17th is going to come, and you're going to actually want to be a tourist because what's going to happen is the federal government regulates the production of products, and the state governments are going to sell them. And if you have ID that says you're 19, you can buy them. So I have 350,000 medical audience right now. There are 35 million Canadians in Canada. When the states or the provinces have made their selection decision, who's getting shelf space, every one of them has picked us. We're the only company with that. We have about 36 to 40% of the total shelf space across the country allocated to us. And how much of this is a U.S. play? Zero. Regrettably, or not regrettably, it is, under Mr. Obama and Mr. Trump, federally illegal right. to grow cannabis. And so we do not participate anywhere it's federally illegal. We're in 11 countries around the world on five continents, but we're not in the U.S. But I think if and when that changes, we'll probably be the most active, dominant, successful entrant to it because we understand scale and how to create real products that happen in a big way. We talk a lot about competition, and if the numbers look good and the barriers to entry are fairly low, eventually some competition will come in. We have numbers here saying that the global consumer spending on cannabis will hit $32 billion by 2022. What percent market share do you want? About 30 seconds left. Yeah, so I think what you're going to find is that those numbers reflect people who illegally buy cannabis. But um, the market's probably multiples of that because when you turn it into finished goods that you don't have to smoke or if I can knock uh, painkillers off uh, their primary prescription for knee surgery, huge market. So that's just a fraction of what's out there, and I would expect us to be the dominant player. Bruce Linton, Chief Executive Officer of Canopy, of course, involved in the big deal of the day. $3.8 billion U.S., $5 billion Canadian <laughs> uh, invested by Constellation Brands. Thanks for being with us. Uh, look forward to an update uh, very soon. Very interesting deal. Yeah, and you know what? You have some states already sort of pricing this into their budgets when they look at their annual budget, how much revenue they can get from these weed sales. So it's something that the U.S. some U.S. states are starting to look into. Get on your Now, getting on our feed is Christopher Savezia. It's great to have you here. He's the footwear and apparel analyst over at Wedbush Securities, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York. Uh, you know, this has been really fun. We've talked a lot about Nike and Adidas and when the World Cup was going on, we got all the sponsorships. Uh, but I want to look a little bit more here at the fundamentals and particularly with Nike. Uh, Christopher, we're just continuing to clock in. Very solid, single-digit, high single-digit top-line revenue growth. I want to know, though, about when it all comes back to North America. Because for a while, all of the conversation was China, China, international growth. But they're finally learning to perform better now in the home market. Is that right? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, and yes, that is, uh, that is correct. Uh, the international business has always been pretty strong. Uh, and pretty consistent, and we've seen that over a period of time, and we expect that to continue. Uh, the North American business, however, has had its challenges, um, whether it's from product, product relevance, distribution, um, that has, if you go back 18 months ago or so, started to put some pressure on the North American business. They've put in uh, 
you know, policies, procedures, changed the supply chain, uh, got back on innovation and created some more compelling product. That product has started to come into the into the marketplace um, earlier this year. And I think that has definitely started to move the needle a little bit more in terms of improving their North American prospects. I think you saw that surprise in their most recent quarter and the outlook um, for the next fiscal year, starting in June, uh, seems to continue to carry that momentum for their North American business. So, Christopher, one of the questions that comes up seemingly every day on every conference call posed to every CEO is trade and tariffs, trade broadly, specifically tariffs, and specifically when you talk about U.S. and China. How does that play through for Nike specifically and some of its chief rivals? So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, if you really dig a little deeper here, Nike, um, over, over a period of time, most of these brands have actually reduced their dependency on China from a sourcing capability perspective. And I think if you look at today, um, for footwear at least, and even for apparel, uh, China is no longer the number one sourcing region. China right now probably counts for somewhere in the neighborhood of 28% of what Nike sources. And if you look about at the North American business, it's around 40% of revenue. So you start doing the math, you really can only have about 11% or so exposure to revenues hmm. if by any chance there is a material change in, in, um, in sourcing, uh, that, being, that being tariffs. Uh, I also would, would argue potentially there's flexibility to move some of that sourcing to Vietnam, to Indonesia, and other areas, whereby they can procure that product from those regions versus China and send it to North America, thus reducing some of that exposure. I want to talk about the read-through that we're seeing um, on some of the other companies that are its biggest customers. On our supply chain analysis here on the Bloomberg, you have Foot Locker, uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, Macy's, Nordstrom's. Uh, We got retail sales this morning that looked good. How is Nike's success translating, if at all, into some of their customers like the Foot Locker and the Dick's Sporting Goods? So I would say um, certainly as, as Nike's had success and or failures, I think that the retailers have seen some of that impact. I think Foot Locker is clearly one of the call outs. I think lately Dick Sporting Goods has talked about seeing improving innovation out of Nike. They've called out some of their latest footwear product. Um, I think that does help their business. When your vendors are strong, that's certainly going to help the retailer as well. I think for Foot Locker's case, similar, uh, they've certainly had some challenges as the Nike business has slowed, as basketball has been challenging for them. I think as we've started to see some improvement in the Nike business, um, for Foot Locker, it's 60 plus percent of what they buy. Um, you have started to see some improvement there. I think that's what Foot Locker management has articulated. And I think uh, more than likely you'll start to see that momentum build. Um, so we've seen that in some of our checks in terms of what we see out there in the marketplace. The Nike product is starting to work. We think that's a plus for the retailers. The only issue is how much they get. Um, can they get enough to really move the needle? I think that's probably the biggest challenge because this product is in high demand and there's just not that much of it out there. So quickly, 30 seconds left. You are outperform on Nike, neutral on Adidas. Adidas, as Taylor used to say, but now says Adidas. Uh, What's the story there? What's the contrast? So um, Adi had substantial growth for a period of time, improved their product pipeline, spent a lot of money on marketing and development, had relevant product. Um, they rode uh, a period of success um, to some degree at the loss of Nike, losing share. I think as uh, we've started to see Nike step up a little bit more, improve their product, 
Um, I think when you look at some of the things Audi has brought to market, probably have not resonated nearly as well. They've got tougher comparisons, particularly in North America um, and in even in Western Europe. That's an area that they've called out right. has been soft. I think that's created some more challenges. So to us, um, kind of tell the two cities in yeah. terms of development and in terms of what's going on there. Great. Christopher Svezia, footwear and apparel analyst for Wedbush Securities. Thank you so much for joining us. Love talking sneakers, Taylor. And unfortunately, I'm in my flip-flops, not my Air Jordans. <laughs> I'm not wearing my dad's sneaks, so that's good. Love that intro, Fly By Night by the Canadian Trio. We're talking Denver, and as as it so happens, I was in the Denver airport and just I'm recently. And I'm flying there on Friday to spend the weekend, and this is just such a fun coincidence. Such kismet. And so here in our studio, Bloomberg 1130 studio in Manhattan, we've got Gisela Shanahan. She is the CFO of the lovely Denver International Airport. So happy to have you here. So some some news of late. You guys have a new debt issuance. What's happening? What, what are the projects uh, on tap there at DIA? Well, thanks for having us. You know, the projects on tap, Denver is growing. It is exploding. And what we are doing is adding capacity to our facility, about 30%. And we're also continuing to improve and modernize what we have in place. We're 23 years old now, so it's time to reinvest. So we will be adding 39 new gates and completely redeveloping our Jefferson Terminal. And I want to talk about the general supply picture as well. You came to market at a fairly good time. I'm looking at the Fitch Ratings report here where they upgraded the subordinate lean bonds to an A- and the senior lean bonds to a double A-. And just for fun, I pulled up a 4% coupon bomb maturing in 2043. Uh, we can do that here on the Bloomberg with a yield of a 375. Jason, for that type of yield, I mean, it's only 125 basis points over the benchmark AAA. So the pricing seems very favorable right now. Um, how did it go? You know, how how is the pricing environment right now when you're issuing bonds? It's very good for us. We priced yesterday. Um, I think the credit speaks for itself. A lot of interest and demand for the Denver credit. It has performed well historically, one of the best performing airports as far as its bonds. So for us, it was a, a great outcome. Uh, we ended up with about $2.5 billion in issuance um, yesterday, um, which we went into the market with a 2.2 uh, and had the ability to upsize. Um, so it was a very favorable market. So let's talk about the growth that you're seeing you know, j- just on your doorstep there. You know, Notably, I'm, I'm reading this story that our own uh, Matt Winkler, editor-in-chief emeritus, wrote where he points out that Denver was the fastest-growing major American city, only uh, trailing Austin, Texas, overtaking Baltimore, Boston, Detroit, and Washington. What is driving that growth? It's a number of things. The economy has become so diverse in Colorado over the last 10 to 15 years. And it is attracting millennials and baby boomers alike, uh, which is a very interesting dynamic. So we have um, aviation, advanced manufacturing, financial services all growing. The job market is extremely hot, well under 3% unemployment. And we also have this beautiful backdrop called the Rocky Mountains. Right. And so people love to come out and participate and live right where the backyard affords those opportunities. I think this also brings us into a broader conversation about infrastructure in general. Because early earlier this year, we got the Trump proposal. We had an infrastructure week. It's sort of been a buzzword in 2018. But yet we haven't seen concrete plans. And I wonder, from your perspective... 
how hard is it to plan? Have you just learned to take on the responsibility yourself? You have to go ahead with your plans because you're not quite sure if you can rely now on the state and the federal government. Because sometimes I feel we get mixed messages about the subsidies and how we're going to finance a grand national infrastructure program. We do. We plan. Um, if there are opportunities along the way, we're certainly there and ready to participate it, in it. But what really has worked well in Denver is the visionaries that put the airport in place. It has driven economic development in the area, continues to be the backdrop of that boom. The airport is the largest economic uh, driver in the state of Colorado. So we are committed in our region to investing in infrastructure, and we have done that on a regular basis, regardless of the environment. And that's what we're doing here, right? The airport put its plan in its place. It's meeting the demand that is um, needed in Colorado. And we're now implementing. So you mentioned adding 39 gates, I believe, and obviously an expansion underway. Give us a sense of what trends you see as people move through the airport, either you know out uh, into the greater Denver and and Colorado area, or as people come from Denver to other places, what's the mood of travelers right now? Are they spending money? Are they pulling back? Where where are we there? It's such a great economic indicator, it feels like. It really is. We are, you know, travelers are loving the ability to travel, whether it's coming to our airport and staying, which is an origination and destination passenger, or whether it's connecting and moving on. But they are definitely traveling. What's interesting about Denver, when you talk about that flow, you go back 10, 15 years, we were 40% of our traveling public was starting their trip or ending their trip in Denver for that region. We are now at about 64 to 65% of the total coming through is an origination and destination passenger. Huh. So they are either starting their trip or they're coming to our region to do business, pleasure, tourism. So let me ask you something. I mean, it, are there different economics depending on the type of traveler that you're getting coming through the airport or are they all the same to you? Different economics. So an origination and destination or O&D passenger is going to park, rent a car, do all those things. A connecting passenger may buy some food while they're coming through your airport, but very different economics. At what point, and we might not be there yet, but I want to ask it anyways, do you get concerned about over-congestion? Every time we get uh, the S&P Case-Shiller existing um, uh, not existing, yeah, existing home sales. They're always one of the highest priced home areas. And when we talk about Denver's population during the past five years, up 10%, you're consistently the fastest growing American city. At what point do you worry now about a burden that maybe you aren't able to provide the infrastructure that you need to? Something we think about every day. So it's part of the planning process. You just cannot not think about it. So it is something that uh, does present challenges. Any economic boom does. But I think it's something we're addressing very well in the region. Very good. Gisela Shanahan, thank you so much for joining us. You, of course, are the chief financial officer at the Denver International Airport, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Thanks so much. Talk about travel. You know, I could always talk about a muni bond any day. Uh, They have that five-year capital improvement plan, about $3.5 billion. So we're going to see perhaps some new additional debt issuance come down at the pike. And I will say from the market's perspective, they're craving this issuance because there's just been a dearth of supply out there. Well, maybe a road to 
nowhere, but it feels like a rocky and certainly curvy road uh, these days. Tesla continuing to dominate the headlines. Uh, To break it down for us, we've got Matt Robinson. He's the financial regulation reporter here joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And on the phone, Craig Trudell, U.S. Auto's team leader. He joins us from our Detroit bureau. So, gentlemen, the news today reports that the SEC is getting a little bit more aggressive in in looking into this, a report uh, that a subpoena has gone out to Tesla. So, Matt... What does this mean? What, what's happening? So when uh, so the agency is just gathering information. So when uh, an investigation first starts, it's just preliminary. They're sort of kicking the tires. If they want to issue a subpoena, they go to uh, the co-directors of enforcement and say, hey, I found out, found out X, Y, and Z. I want a subpoena power. That's it. So there's no there's no conclusion based on what the SEC's looked at. Mm. It's just now they have the authority to say, "Hey Tesla, we want we want your communications here. We want we want to know what you were thinking there." So they're just in now. Um, just to point out, um, the average investigation takes about two years. <laughs> oh wow, that would be just such a distraction. I mean, probably r- yes. And in, in that that in mind, the agency's going to want to move as fast as it can. But you know, like for instance, if if they're having fun meetings with. You know, sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. You can't subpoena a foreign national. It's, right. it's there's a lot of okay. Well, how do you have that conversation? Can you have emails? So there's a lot. You know, they need to go out and corroborate. You know, a lot of the you know what's been out there. So, Craig, jump in here as we pause for a second. Bring us up to speed on exactly where we are. Obviously, the Musk tweet last week, the tweet that launched a thousand conversations. Where does it stand today in terms of where Tesla and Elon Musk are in terms of this potential go private? Oh, uh, where to begin? I mean, you, you talked about a, a road to nowhere and, and it being uh, sort of winding and up and down. I think it's also just the case to, to kind of extend that metaphor that you have you have a situation where uh, Elon is in one car and sort of, uh, yeah. you know, take, taking off and driving crazily and his board and and his company uh his uh public relations and investor relations staff is uh you know all sort of trailing behind and trying to figure out where the heck he's going to turn next so uh we're in a situation where you know musk came out and said i'm thinking of taking them private um you know at this point uh it, it does seem abundantly clear that when he said he had the funding secured uh, to buy investors out at 420 a share that he did not have his T's crossed and I's dotted. And it's sort of up to the SEC, as Matt alluded to, to figure out uh, whether or not that's, you know, problematic enough to warrant, uh, you know, fines and, and those sorts of things. And, and that may be, as as Matt alluded to, a, a years-long process. But one thing's for sure, we, we, we know that uh, what what Elon wants to do is is to keep as many of the existing shareholders he has now, mm-hmm. those who want out, buy him out at 420 a share, and he wants to bring in some new ones. And at, at this point, he's he's putting a significant amount of uh, attention on uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, public investment fund, their sovereign wealth fund. Uh, he really sort of put it all on uh, on the the public investment fund his his sort of justification for why he made that claim that he had funding secured and aside from that it, it's all sort of hearsay at this point in terms of who those additional investors uh, might be and might not be Craig I just have to ask how much of a distraction is all of this I mean they're already you know sort of trying to ramp up to that 5000 model 3s a week the board now is sort of getting involved how much of a distraction is this from just the day-to-day operations 
That's a good question. I, I think the we we have heard, you know sort of uh, you know had our our ear to the to the pavement uh, around Fremont, uh, the factory where Tesla builds those Model Threes, and I think it's a, a bit of a distraction, but it's also more of a situation of kind of like you know what's he saying now, what's he tweeting now, uh, and and employees are not necessarily um, you know losing sleep over this or or you know, and not uh, assembling cars correctly because they're worried about this or that. Um, I do think it, it, it is a situation where, and, and there was a report by the New York Times last night that, that the board, that members of the board have, would actually uh, specifically like to see Elon stop tweeting. It's been interesting to, to see that, that Elon has uh, not been posting today. Uh, and and you do get the sense that this is uh, causing problems for the board uh, twice now. Uh, the company has had to put out a statement on behalf of the board uh, a day after Elon's tweets, the first time just when he came out on uh, Tuesday of last week uh, to sort of get this whole thing started. And then uh, earlier this week when he tweeted that he was working with uh, Goldman Sachs and Silver Lake as his advisors, uh, you know, the, the board had to come out and say, uh, you know, we have this uh, uh, committee going of three directors, and they're going to look into Musk's proposal once he once he has one ready. Which, uh, you know, obviously uh, inherent in that statement means that he does not have a proposal ready. So, much much more to come. It feels like on this story. Thanks so much, Craig Trudell, U.S. Autos team leader with Bloomberg News, joining us from our Detroit bureau, and right here in the studio, Matt Robinson, our financial regulations reporter. And we need Matt Robinson to come back because we had a really interesting conversation about what funding secured actually means and then just the describe like there's a you have to have a reasonable basis to, for all of that so very interesting conversation and the nuances i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive on excuse me i want to drive just drive baby it's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. You know, the drive to the close music never gets old. I love it. It's my third day, and I'm like, I'm really rocking out over here. I'm having a great time. Well, you're an REM fan. You <laughs> like a little drive rate, a little deep cut. And this is really fun because taking us up to the closing bell, we have Sean Cruz. He's the manager of Trader Strategy from TD Ameritrade, based in Chicago, but he's joining us here. No, he's our- reload. He's a he's a New Yorker okay. now, right? He's As of last relocated. week, I'm officially yeah. officially relocated. He's so got that swagger us. about him. He doesn't have that Midwestern <laughs> sort of vibe anymore. He's tough. He's like open collar shirt. You know, he's- I did a lot of research before I came out here. I love it. Well, love the it. best thing about having you here in studio is we were just sort of talking about a phenomenon that you've been tracking sort of between the opening bell and the closing bell Monday, Tuesday, and then maybe today, that when we sort of see a risk off day, you start to see treasuries and dollar move together. But then as the fear dissipates over the day, that decoupling really starts to happen. Is that as well something again that we're seeing today? I think so. And I think there's a distinction to be drawn between a flight to quality and a flight to safety because you can find quality assets pretty much anywhere globally if you really look hard enough. But when you talk about a flight to safety, what we see is a flight into dollar-denominated assets. And so what we've seen so far this week in the mornings, especially when we get news out from overseas overnight, is you see that flight to safety. And what I mean by a flight to safety is you see the dollar 
rally as investors come into dollar-based assets, but you also see treasuries rally as, as investors go into those safer assets as well. And you typically don't see the relationship of the dollar moving higher and treasury prices moving higher at the same time. There's usually an inverse relationship. So we see that in the morning. And as the, the day goes on, and I think a investors take a little bit more of a reassessment and feel a bit more comfortable, you start to see that trade unwind and you see that normal relationship. Either the dollar pulls back and treasuries continue to rally or the dollar continues to rally and treasuries pull back. And we've seen that so far this week. So let's talk a couple names. One name that is drawing a lot of attention and not in a good way today is Macy's. That stock is down almost 16%. Uh, really disappointing uh, investors out there. And the lead on the Bloomberg story says it all. It'll take more than three good quarters to convince Wall Street that Macy's Inc., is back in style. What do you hear from them today that's spooking the market like this? I think the big thing is, one, you're correct, they do want to see a lot more of a consistent outperformance. We did get that today. But I think expenses came in a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And when they're talking about a shift in their business model of sorts into some of their other brands, investors want to know how much are you paying to get growth into those brands. I think expenses came in a little higher than they were expecting, and that hurt margins. So I think right now investors want to see if they can stabilize margins and continue to grow those those other brands, those other channels they have without having to sink a lot of cash into it. And this, of course, is coming ahead of Walmart. What does this tell you, if anything? And aside from that, what are you looking for from Walmart when they report? I, I think for Walmart, initially, we'll start with, with what I was looking at, and that was what's going on with their e-commerce. They have a, a target of 40% e-commerce sales. 2019, they're at about 32, 33% as of last quarter. And it, one of their, their I'd say, more uh, successful or well-received acquisitions from investors was Jet.com. Jet the CEO of Jet.com stayed on and he runs their e-commerce sales. So he'll be an important figure in, in their earnings report this week. The one thing I, I really want to look at now after getting the Macy's news, though, is maybe investors are also going to focus in not only on Walmart margins, but maybe Nordstrom margins. They're going to yeah. look at a lot of these big retailers, these big department stores, and ask themselves, are, are they finding growth in some of the new channels they want to expand into at the at the expense of higher or lower margins? Well, growth comes at a cost, right? Whether yes. that's discounting or trying to offload unwanted inventory, whatever that may be. You talk about growth into new areas. I know for Walmart, a key really has been China and India, and they've made some um, significant investments uh, for that, they might be poised really to outperform because they're one of the few companies that has sort of a foothold. And in some cases, one of the companies that can really only compete against like an Amazon, for example. What do we know sort of there on the international side? About 30 seconds left. So I think if you're looking at, at the international side, the big story and what I think really moved equity markets today was out of China. And I think you've got a, a fresh batch of regulatory risk that I think with the, the trade talks going on so much that took center stage. So now with regulatory risk coming out. And by that, I mean what Tencent uh, reported when they said, look, no more game licenses going out. That hit a lot of these big China tech companies that rely on gaming to drive user engagement. That was a major drag on all those tech names. And when you look at EEM, that's pretty much the, the top 10 of EEM are these big China tech companies. So that's why you're seeing EEM down today. And you're also seeing the NASDAQ underperform um, the Dow and the S&P. Sean Cruz, manager of trader strategy at TD Ameritrade. 
recent arrival in New York City from Chicago. Headed back there, it sounds like. You'll be back and forth. Hopefully, you'll come back and spend some more time with us. Great insights on the market today. And we're moving closer and closer to the close, Tay. Yeah, we are. And coming up, we'll have some of the stocks that you and I are watching, some movers and shakers. We'll get a breakdown of sort of everything you need to know at the close. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.